0: Hello everyone, this week on New Narrative, we have a great article about Mo Yan Yang, the former police captain who exposed the police plot to entrap two journalists who had uncovered a military massacre of Rohingya. He was then showered with awards and praise, but these have shielded him from questions about his own potential involvement in the killings, and he's now running for political office in Myanmar. So there's serious questions here about his own culpability. Read more on newnarrative.com Today we interview Dr Stephanie Chok. If you're Singaporean, you don't need any introduction to the case of Patti Liani. It has rocked Singapore and brought down Liu Man Leong, one of Singapore's most powerful businessmen. It's a massive scandal. Ibu Yani had been accused of stealing from members of the Liu family. And a first trial convicted her. This sentence was then overturned in the High Court and serious questions were raised in the High Court judgment about the police handling of the investigation and the conduct of the first trial. It's been a huge mess. Steffi is a home volunteer who has been part of the team supporting Parti Liani from the beginning of her ordeal. And so Steffi sat down with me to give an inside view on the case, and we talked about the handling of the investigation by the police, the problems of the trial, and how this is not an isolated incident, but related to broader structural issues plaguing Singapore. This is a really important interview, and I really urge you to listen to it. And as always, if you like what we do, if you appreciate what New Narrative does, please do join us as a member, newnarrative.com join, or donate to us at newnarrative.com donate. We really need your support to keep producing this sort of really important reporting. Hello, and welcome back to Political Agenda. And at the end of a very long and interesting week for New Narrative, we have... Uh, yet another really, really good podcast for all of you. We welcome today to the show, uh, Stephanie Chock. Hi,
1: everyone. Doctor Stephanie
0: Chock. Sorry, yeah, I should yeah. I should specify. Okay. You have a PhD. Stephanie Chalk's fine. Yeah. No, no, it's important. It's fine. Yeah. You earned it. Uh, who will be talking to us today about the Liani case? And uh, even though lots is happening to New Narrative, we can't lose sight of the fact that New Narrative is here to be a platform to tell stories that. Um, may not be carried in other media outlets, uh, and to tell stories about the marginalized, uh, to give a platform to people whose, whose stories might not otherwise be told. Uh, and so I'm very, very excited and very glad to have Steffi here today to talk about uh, Ibu Yani. So welcome, Steffi.
1: Thanks, thanks, Pj. Thanks for having me. So let's let's
0: start for the audience by explaining um, your connection to the case and your relationship with Ibu Yani.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, at the time when um, Yani was issued the caution statements in August two thousand and seventeen, I was the case manager at Home Shelter. And therefore, I uh, took on the case. You know, I was working there at the time. And um, I'd reached out to uh, defence lawyer, Anil Balchandani, and had requested th- uh, that he take on the case and represent so, Yanni. Uh,
0: so Yani came in to... Or was this uh, through the police? You heard this through the police or Yani herself came in to home?
1: Oh, so Yanni had already been staying at home shelter since December 2016. Okay. So at the time when she was arrested and uh, came out on bail she didn't have a place to stay and therefore she ended up at the home shelter because we run a shelter for distressed domestic workers. Uh, so she'd already been staying at the shelter since December 2016 and at the time when she was issued the caution statements um, and she was charged or uh, was when things kind of like really kicked into a gear where we had to get legal representation and we knew that um, uh, the decision then was to claim trial because she said that she was innocent and that she didn't do it.
0: Right. Yeah. And so how is Ibu yani today? Is she is she alright? How is she doing? Is she back home in Indonesia?
1: Uh, she's currently still in Singapore. Um, she's on a special pass still and um, it is unclear exactly when she will go back to Indonesia um, as there still matters to be dealt with. But we hope that she can go back soon. She's very eager to return to see her mother whom she has not seen for almost four years, and her mother's uh, quite elderly. Yeah, um, Emotionally, uh, she is really relieved and happy at the acquittal. Uh, she has expressed that she's a little bit uncomfortable with the publicity, like being recognised now that she's outside. Of course, she's also very heartened by the shows of support um, by others, but she has been incredibly stoic and strong throughout this entire time. Which I think is also why um, she was able to, uh, we were able to support her through this. It's also partly because um, Yani of, of Yanni's resolve and conviction that uh, she's innocent and she wants to fight the case to the end.
0: Yeah, I mean she must be amazingly strong because uh, you know dealing with the Singapore justice legal and justice system four yeah. years and um, not bending or breaking. Um, and all the pressure placed upon her, yes right, and even now i 'm quite i'm surprised she's still she's still here because what the the you, the police still need her help, was it you said
1: Yes, so currently the situation is that um there are indications that uh they will still need yani here for a while, but they haven't specified for how long, but our hope is that and her hope is that she can return um to Indonesia soon, yeah.
0: Right. And, and what exactly was your role amidst all this?
1: Um, so, in, initially, um, I think when I got involved, um, I, I don't think I or anyone else that got involved at that stage in 2017, I don't think we realised uh, exactly what this case entailed. I think we responded to each action item as it arose, Right? And as we got more familiar with the case, then, um, then Anil would just assign tasks to us. right? So maybe it was trying to find out more about um, how watches are valued. Right? Right. So uh, then he would just give instructions as if um, I was a magician. Like, go find me a watch expert. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Anil, why not? That would be the easiest thing in the world to do. Right? Um, yeah, this knife, Jami, it's a Singapore company. Go, go find out more. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it, I was, I'm not legally trained.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so initially I was like, oh, how can I assist a lawyer? This is a legal case, right? And I think initially a few of the other volunteers also felt that way. Uh, but we did also have people with legal training who had to kind of uh, grapple with the legal arguments and the legal side. So I think what we really did was worked really well as a team. Right and right. I think it was that sense of solidarity, support and commitment and resolute belief in Yannis' innocence and at our disbelief and at times shock and horror at what we felt was being revealed as the court, uh, as the trial re- uh, sort of continued that kind of really drove us to continue you know um, now that I look back at the things that I did, I was not prepared to do any of them I didn't think at the time I would be able to do things like you know find a watch expert or or contribute to a defense submission Um, but those were things that we all pitched in to help with and Anil just kind of led us through that process and uh, we just pieced everything together always as a team Wow okay
0: so let's talk about the case um And I mean, where do we start? There are so many issues with this case. Uh, I think there is, you know, this has been gone over in the public uh, and in the mainstream media. We don't need to get into too much, but it seems to me like there are four sort of really, really big issues here. One is sort of that the Liu's uh, lied to the police and filed a a false police report uh, alleging theft. Uh, another is is how the police then investigated and the uh, break in the chain of uh, evidence, uh, in in the chain of custody of evidence, um, and the sort of collusion then that the loose demonstrated on the stand and the infamous uh, wearing women's clothing issue, and and of course then the behavior of the uh, officials involved, especially the. Um, I believe it was a deputy public prosecutor, and this sleight of hand regarding the DVD player, and I mean, it just seems like, um, you know, it, it's not even one thing; it's it's one after another, where the whole system should have caught these things, and at some point, someone should have said, "Wait, hold on, stop!" You know, justice is not being served here. So, from from your your perspective, right? What what happened? How you know how did all this go wrong?
1: It's extremely baffling, uh, and aggravating to have watched this unfold over the last three years and nine months. And for the longest time, um, it was so difficult to talk about this because as the trial was ongoing, there were concerns about sub judice. But like you said, there were so many things that were unfolding and, and every day after another day of trial, will be like, what just happened there? You know, so, you know, this forensic analysis that's happening now, people bringing things up, like in shock and horror. But I want to emphasize that all this was said in open court in 2018, right? The fact, so ASP, right? Tang Rulong, was the prosecution witness on day one and day two. This was in April 2018. By then, he already revealed that for five weeks after the first information report was filed by Liu Ma Leong, nothing was done. he already revealed in court that Liu Ma Leong filed the police report on the 30th of October 2016. Day after that, warrant of arrest was issued without him having even visited the Liu's house secured the evidence or even spoken to Mr Liu. This was revealed in open court in April 2018. So my question is who was paying attention, who was not paying attention? And if somebody was paying attention, how did this case then continue? We then also have on day two, the crime scene specialist right? So he testified that um, he was with uh, ASP Tang, they went to Carl Liu's house, they went to Liu Ma Leung's house. By that time, the three jumbo boxes that were involved in the case where the alleged stolen items were from, they'd already been shifted from the alleged scene of the crime from Mr Liu's house to Carl Liu's house. So no longer are there three boxes in Mr Liu Manyong's house. So the crime scene specialist in March 2018, right, he was tasked to go to do a sketch of Liu Yang's house. And in that sketch, he drew in three jumbo boxes. But by that time, there were no longer three jumbo boxes there. So our defence lawyer asked him about this, right? And he admitted that he drew in the three jumbo boxes not based on contemporaneous evidence, meaning at the crime scene, um, my assumption is you just draw what you see. But he drew... The three boxes based on ASP Tang's instructions. Wait, wait, hold on. Why why do we have someone drawing it? Don't they have cameras? I don't understand this. Yeah, exactly. So I don't understand that process as well. Why did you draw a sketch, not based on what you saw, but based on the instructions of ASP Tang, even though by that time, there were no longer three boxes in the house? One or two of those boxes had already been removed and was sitting in Carl U's house.
0: So he, he instead of taking a photo, he draws a sketch on the inst- and and this sketch is then becomes evidence and is, you know, brought into the trial and he actually admits that on the stand that he he actually didn't see the boxes, he just drew them on these instructions. He
1: couldn't fully remember at the time on the stand, but then when asked whether or not th- that but then he also testified that he had been to Carl's house. Prior to that, and that there were already boxes there, so clearly it's not possible that there were still three boxes in Yumanyong's house on yes. the day that he drew the sketch. And then he admitted that he drew the three boxes in on ASP tanks' instruction. Okay. So, red flag. Yes. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Okay. So this 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 whole thing is is um I mean it's just the the. You know, for me, right, uh, a police report was issued against New Narrative on a Friday and I'm in the police uh, being questioned on a Monday, right? Mm. That's literally less than one working day I was, you know, from one to the other. Mm. But for, for, for this, it's like there's no investigation, there's just a warrant issued uh and then and of course it took the police 20 minutes to drive from Clementi police station with me here where okay. we're recording this to yep. seize my laptop but for four you officers yes four officers <laughs> yeah but what you're saying is for you i mean for 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 Ibuli Yani mm-hmm. uh they send one guy who just does a sketch doesn't use a camera I think he camera. was
1: accompanied by the um, I I guess he was accompanied by right. the IO yeah okay okay yeah,
0: yeah well, and and i mean but he, he, you know, so the, the, I guess the number of uh, officers isn't as important as the fact that I, I still don't understand why they didn't take a photo. But okay, so there's, there's they this... They did
1: take photos as well. Oh, they did take photos yeah, as
0: well. Did, did, did. Okay, so what I I'm just, sorry, I'm just still puzzled by the need for a sketch. Why do we need a sketch? <laughs> I, I don't... Okay, yeah. you don't know, I don't know. Okay, so what... what um, the, 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 this whole, how the police investigated then... Yeah. Right. What what other issues then turned up in you know in, in court as as this went yeah. along?
1: So, um as you'd already mentioned, I mean the the big thing would be the break in the chain of evidence leading to potential contamination of evidence. Um and also how um, Ibu Yani was uh, interviewed during the statement taking. Right. So, like you already mentioned, and maybe for listeners who are not so clear about the timeline, so, uh, party Ibuyani Yani uh, was uh, fired, terminated by the Liu family on the 28th of October. And um, in the process of packing, you know, there were three jumbo boxes that were ordered for her and the items were placed inside with the assistance of the two drivers. On the 29th, uh, the Liu family, Heather, Carl Liu and uh, Mrs Liu or Madam Ng opened the boxes, uh, claimed that there were alleged stolen items in there. On the 30th of October, Liu Maliong files a police report saying that Parti Liani had stolen items from the family and subsequently ASP Tang issues a warrant of arrest without having visited the house to secure evidence without having visited the scene of the crime and without having interviewed Mr. Lee Manyang. And there's five weeks of inaction. Right,
0: so this is 2016, right? Yeah, so So five weeks of
1: inaction and as you have contrasted compared to how quickly they moved uh, when your uh, police report was filed against you. And then in December 2016, 2nd of December 2016 is when Parti flies back to Singapore and she's arrested at the airport. And And at
0: this point, she has no idea that any of this is going on. She's just coming back to look for work.
1: Yes. So she had no idea a police report was filed. And you know, somebody, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and the person said, you know, she had no idea. So she could have just stayed in Indonesia and then five years later decide to come back for a holiday and she'll be arrested at the airport. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. that? (laughs) But anyway, so she came back on the 2nd of December 2016. Uh, She was arrested at the airport, uh, brought to remand at Tanglin Police Station. And that was when the police realised, oh, you don't have those things they accused you of stealing. Oh, the boxes are still in Mr Liu's house. Okay, let's go make a visit.
0: You know, this is something that also puzzles me. How can someone steal something if it never actually leaves the house that it was supposed to be stolen from? so
1: I've been asked that question so many times <laughs> yes so in court I think what ASP Tang I don't think I can remember his exact words but it was something like how he was removed from the possession of that person so yeah so anyway it was classed as theft right so that at that point they visit the house and Yani is questioned she's questioned twice um, I mean first of all you have to imagine how shocked she was right You arrive in Singapore, you have no idea that this police report was filed. And she was handcuffed, taken into custody, questioned about all these things. And she's like, what? The boxes never arrived? I don't know what items are you talking about? And the first time she's interviewed by the police um, is after she's arrested, when she's really confused and shaken and shocked and upset. And they interview her without any items. The items are not physically in front of her. She has no photographs of the items. They're just verbal descriptions of what the lews have accused her of stealing. And she's interviewed without a Bahasa Indonesian-speaking interpreter, right? right? And if you see the statement, it says that the statement was read to her in English. And she was interviewed for over three hours, right? Right. Then subsequently, I guess, they finally make the visit to the house. And then they have photocopies, like blurry indistinct black and white photographs of the items and then she's woken up at like 1.44 in the morning still in remand interviewed again by the same IO this time without a Bahasa Indonesia speaking interpreter would have had enough time by then to get one yeah uh, the statement was recorded in English read back to her in Malay uh, for four hours she was uh, interviewed and she wow. was asked a hundred and eight questions just based on black and white photocopies of the photographs, and these two police statements were adduced in court by the prosecutors to try and impeach her credibility. These two police statements that were taken at this right. time under these circumstances.
0: Now, it's 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 important to note this is actually is, is it is is it it's actually a violation of her legal rights uh, that she is interviewed without an interpreter present, right? Isn't is is this under the law? You you can you are supposed to have someone who can actually speak your language, so or is this a gap in the law where there is actually no requirement?
1: Okay, so in 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 court, um, what Ayo Amea was saying was that, you know, um, party implied that she understood, you know, but I think in Justice Singh On's uh, judgment on page thirty seven. Uh, para 74 and 75. Um, he talks about this bit, right? Uh, the p- a statement made by a person examined under this section, the statement must be read over if the person does not understand English, be interpreted for a pers- for the person in a language that the person understands.
0: Right. So right? this is the procedural requirement in the CPC. CPC.
1: That, so what does that stand for? Uh, a criminal Procedure
0: Code? Criminal procedure yeah. code? Well, it's the, it's the law basically that they have to do this.
1: Interpret in a language that the person understands. Yeah. So I think what uh, the police officer was trying to say in court that But Yani understands Malay, understands English, right? But then Justice Chan, bless you, Justice Chan, <laughs> if I see you on the street, I know it might be. If it's, if it's appropriate, I will give you the biggest hug in the world, but it's probably not appropriate, so I wouldn't <laughs> Just give you a high five. Okay, um, so Paris 76, right? Justice Chan says, non-compliance with the procedures under Section 22 of the CPC can nevertheless diminish the weight of the statements. So appropriate weight must be accorded to the statements when considering the specific answers relied on by the judge for the conviction.
0: Yeah. So 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 basically, uh, to translate that into normal speech, she's basically interviewed in a language she doesn't fully understand.
1: It's and, not her native and language. It's,
0: yeah, it's not her native language. This is not justice. This is not fair. And um, and then that statement, which she does not fully understand, is then admitted into court as evidence and relied upon in her first conviction.
1: Yeah, so it was basically used, uh, it was introduced by the prosecution to impeach party's credibility. And it was used by both the prosecutors and the judge to uh, imply that Yanni was inconsistent and not credible as a witness. Right. Golly. Okay. Yeah.
0: And I have to add, you know, 108 questions in four hours is a lot. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a rush. I, I got four and a half hours. I only had like 65 questions. And in yeah. English, right? Yeah, and I know in English, of yeah, course. Yes, yeah. yes. Whereas for yeah. her, it was in a language she did not understand, and she's being rushed to it.
1: And and for P thirty three, which is the 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 number according to the police statement that was was uh, adduced. So another issue with P thirty three is that um, ASP Tang, mm-hmm. uh, who was the investigating officer, um, party alleged that he was present uh, during the statement taking for P thirty three, but his name is not on the statement. Right. So Ayo Amir was asked about this in court as well, and um, Anil was asking, "Is it standard procedure for somebody to be present during the statement taking, and then the name not be on the statement?" And Ayo Amir, uh, and Anil asked, "What was it? A mistake?" Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I believe uh, Ayo Amir said something like, "It may have been a mistake. It may not have been a mistake."
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not really an answer. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Um, so there we we have all these huge issues with how the police investigated it. Yeah. And um, then
1: the the seizing of the items, right? Oh, so okay. importantly, it's important to note that on the eight, 17th and eighteenth of April twenty eighteen, Ayo Tang and Ayo Amir go to Kaliu's house to seize all the items he says that party stole from him. This is April twenty eighteen. Six almost 16 months after Party was first arrested, right. right? And four days before the trial started was when Party and Anil were finally able to physically see the items that she had been accused of stealing 16 months ago. So at each point at which she was questioned by the police, she never got to see the physical items. So just imagine being questioned about, small little earrings Mm. necklaces watches very similar sounding items based on first no photographs then blurry photographs then finally a set of photographs and then finally you see the actual items and don't forget the 120 pieces of clothing how would you be able to distinguish between all these pieces of clothing in photographs where everything is folded up right so finally like on the 11th and 19th of april 2018 yeah Party and Anil are finally allowed to see the physical items, and then four days later, the trial starts. What? Yeah. Okay, so she's
0: arrested December twenty sixteen. What happened throughout all of twenty seventeen? She's just sitting there in home shelter.
1: Yes, unable to work, not allowed to work, not given permission to work.
0: And and what are the police doing? I would like to know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. This okay. The more you get into the details of this case, the more you like well you know, yeah. it just so, boggles the mind. I'm so trying me, to So the <laughs> third
1: police okay, let me let me let me talk about the third police statement. So there's P thirty two, P thirty three. So basically the prosecutors uh, adduced three statements to impeach parties' credibility, P thirty two, P thirty three and right. then there's P thirty one. P thirty one was taken in twenty seventeen. This was when the case was temporarily handed over. From ASP Tang to ASP Lim Shan. okay? So, finally, there are colour photographs. Finally, there's a Bahasa speaking interpreter. But um, the number of questions, she, it was a 4-hour, 15-minute interview. She was asked 70 questions. And she was asked to go through 119 photographs over 29 pages during this time. And Lim Shan, in court... Testified that yes, she was going through the statement very, very quickly, and imagine she had to speak in English. It had to be interpreted by the Bahasa speaking interpreter into Bahasa. Yani will say something in Bahasa. It has to be interpreted back into English. Over one hundred and ninety nine, one hundred and nineteen photographs in four hours for seventy questions. So the the opportunities for mistakes, misinterpretations, are uh, are really high, and. Yani testified in court that the interpreter was going so fast speaking in a mix of Malay and Bahasa Indonesia and it was really confusing for her. Mm. Yeah. So I believe that uh, Chan Sengon also took that into right. account.
0: And so this is, what was it, August 2017?
1: August, uh, no, sorry, May 2017. And then she was charged on the 28th of August 2017. Right. So okay. all this was taking place all the way from December 2016 to 2017. And then the items were seized, finally seized in 2018.
0: Oh, so this whole time, they did the, the, the police did not have the items, even when they're showing her photos of the items, yeah. they had just gone to the Liu's house yes. to photograph the items, yes. but never actually held yes. on to the so items. So ASP
1: Tang explained this. He said, oh, okay, I told them that they should not discard the items, but they were free to use it. Otherwise, I would be re-victimizing them.
0: Did the police offer any reason for this long delay? Is this standard? You know, f- I think for me, for our audience listening, mm-hmm. like is it, is it standard to have this massive delay between uh, arrest in December, a sort of re-questioning in May, a charge then in August, and then a trial in April 2018. Like this is, seems like a very, very long delay.
1: That that's a question for the police to answer,
0: right? Okay. I'm
1: baffled as well.
0: They do say justice delayed is justice denied, you know, and it seems very unfair um, that she's sitting, Yani Ibu Yani's, is just stranded and unable to work for for sixteen months.
1: Yeah, the <sighs> the implication of the delay is also significant, and this was what defence reason and and Justice Chan also noticed was that the contamination of evidence, right? right? So basically, the fact that the items were unsecured, yeah. meaning the boxes were open and then yeah. just left there uh, for months. So anything could have been put in or taken out by anyone, yes, right? Um, there's no way of ensuring that the police had in hand contemporaneous evidence of this alleged crime scene, right? right. And then items were shifted, right? They were shifted from... Mr. Liu Manong's house to Carl Liu's house and then he'd use items they were taken out of the box back in the box some of the kitchen utensils were used mm. you know by him to collect curry right. when he bought prata so and then by the time the police actually went in April to collect items from Carl Liu three items that he alleged were stolen from him were already missing right. right so you know these are stolen items evidence had gone missing Right, and the evidence had been tampered with because the packaging for some things were also gone. Yeah, so um, the contamination of evidence, I feel, is a very serious consequence of these delays.
0: Right. Yeah. Wow, these are huge, huge issues. I mean, I don't even just sitting here. I don't even see how this, and and the fact that you so, um, four day you the. You finally, Ibuyani Anil got to see the evidence and oh. the trial starts four days later. Yes. And there's like, what was it? A hundred and something pieces of...
1: 144 items worth oh an estimated $50,000 before uh, the value was, you know, uh, changed at the uh, end of the yeah. trial. But at that point, it was 144 items valued at approximately $50,000.
0: I mean, they had 16 months to do all this and then you give, they give you four days. It's almost like, well... Let's not make any, I won't make any allocations, but this is very disturbing.
1: And I also want to talk about the valuation of items, right? So the the items were valued at, I mean, at at approximately $50,000. And in court, Anil had asked um, Io Tang, how were these values derived? And ASP Tang said that it was not him that identified the value of the items on the chart sheet. It was conveyed to him by the individual complainants. So basically whatever value is on the chart sheet, it was simply told to him by the Liu family. So Mr Liu would say, okay, this is my item, it costs this much, and Io Tang would just write it down. And there was no um, documentation provided by the Liu's to support the prices that they've cited. So Carl Liu, for example, says, Yanni stole this Gerald Gentle watch from me, it's worth $25,000. So this is a watch with a broken strap, a missing knob, and the mechanism is faulty. So he was asked in court, uh, how did you come to this value of $25,000? And he says, oh, uh, I believe it's a famous brand. My impression of an expensive watch is something that is worth more than 20000 so $25,000. So and he then, just
0: pulled it out of air, basically. Does, I mean, he, did, did he actually... He's not saying, I bought the watch, so I know how much it costs.
1: He's just saying... It was a gift from mm, his father, is what he said. Right. And then he estimated that, that amount because, you know, he he had he, an impression that it was an expensive watch, and an impression of expensive watch would be one that costs above $20,000. And then so he valued it at $25,000.
0: You know, this also says a bit about him that an expensive watch is above 20000 For me, like, an expensive watch is above I don't know, $100, right? But he starts at twenty k.
1: Yeah. And then there's the Helix watch, right? So um, that's a watch that Carl said that Party stole from him and that he valued at uh, $50. So he was asked uh, on the stand, why did you value at $50? He said, because it's an ugly-looking watch. And therefore, I would think a watch like this, like, ugly-looking watch would be maybe $100, but then because it's so ugly, he divided it by two and he got $50, and then our watch expert, a uh, horologist, um, Eric Ong, he, on the stand, looked at the Helix watch and he said, that's a dog gift. You get it free when you buy Shell Oil. It is a, a very low value watch. It's worth nothing. Yeah, and when he looked at the Gerald Gentle watch, he said, this watch... According to his expert witness, and he's a trained horologist, right? He, he, he can even value gemstones. He said that this watch in its current condition is worth no more than $500. The watch that Khali <laughs> valued at $25,000. And throughout this time, nothing was done to value any of these alleged ex- expensive right. items or ascertain um, their condition.
0: If I remember correctly, some of the items were rags, that were then reclassified as, as clothes or something. Oh,
1: one of them, yes, that rag. So uh, among the clothing that Carl accused Party of stealing was a rag that Patty had used in the house to clean up. It was like a used t-shirt and ended up in the pile of clothes that Carl had accused Party of stealing, including her own clothing, of course. Right. Yeah. So
0: there's one piece of evidence I wanted to ask about, which was the video because that seems to be another piece of evidence which was really, really mishandled because apparently the video was introduced to show the extent of Ibuyani's theft but the prosecutors didn't play the audio and the audio was very revealing. Could you talk, talk mm. a bit more about that?
1: Okay, so, um, so there were some issues with that. So first of all, the video was only introduced when the trial started. So oh. Anil was also like... Mm, shouldn't evidence have been submitted before but um, the video was a recording that was taken on Heather's handphone on the 29th of October when they uh, opened up the three jumbo boxes so um, what they said in court was that oh you know we opened up the boxes and we realized all these things so they, they, they took a video recording but this video recording was not taken at the start of when they opened the boxes so it's not clear what the seal status of the boxes were, whether they were actually all sealed at the point at which they had taken them out. Um, so by the time uh, you see the video, you just see lots, the boxes are already open, you see um, piles of things just kind of littered all over the floor, it was like a huge mess. And then you also see a emptied out black trash bag, which is quite significant for us at the appeal stage. So you can see this video, but then if you listen to the audio, uh, it's actually not. It actually kind of contradicts what the views have actually said. So we got uh, a a court accredited translator to transcribe the video. So I'm going to read out the transcript of the videos, and I will play all three characters: Madam Ng, uh, Carl Liu, and Heather. Okay. So this is the video. Uh, I'll just set it up for you. So this is the video where they have opened up the boxes.
0: And, and and then when they submitted this video, what 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 was it supposedly evidence of?
1: Uh, okay, so the prosecutor submitted it to show that, uh, look, they opened up the boxes and these are all so many stolen items from right. Partiliya Okay. Right? Okay. So, but then if you listen to the audio and this is the court-accredited transcription of the audio, it goes, okay, so this is Madam Ng. The Karanguni man helped me to move. And then Carl Liu goes, Ma, you cannot get a Karanguni man here. It's still her things, mom. Then Madam Ung goes, Huh? Cannot? Then this is in Chinese, right? 那还是他的东西, that's Heather, which means these are still her things. And then Madam Ung goes, 他的东西不可以拿, her things cannot la. Then the man, uh, Carl Liu goes, goes, jewelry leh. She still has jewelry leh. Then Madam Ung goes, Huh? 是假的啦,大者,那些。so, Madame Ong goes, huh, Those are fake, la, those. And then uh, Carl goes, Jing de, Which means gold. And the young woman, which is Heather, goes, is真的, Some are real. And then the man, Carly, repeats, yes, Which means some are real. And then uh, Madame Ong goes, ta nah, Impossible. She will take the real ones herself. And then Carl goes, Cannot. Ta and then it kind of trails off. But I guess the most significant part is Madam Ung starts by saying, the Karanguni helped me to move. And Carl goes, Ma, you cannot get the Karanguni man here. It's still her things, ma'am. So they they actually admit in that video. So so Carl in court, right, says, we open the boxes. Oh, it was so emotional. All my things, such sentimental value. But what you see and what, what you hear in the video is, Mrs Liu actually wanting to just discard everything and call the garaguni man. And Carl admitting those are still her things, Mum. So the fact that the prosecutor introduced this video and, and the audio is actually so contradictory to their account is also something so baffling. And we, we um, actually produced the, the transcript of this video at the High Court Appeal on day three to Justice Chan. And at that point, Marcus Fu actually stood up and objected. This is
0: the prosecutor. He said, oh,
1: you cannot introduce new evidence now. And then Justice Chan was like, you don't want me to read the transcript? Well, okay, then just play the video and let me hear the audio. So they played the video again and everybody in court could hear Mrs Liu going, call the Karanguni man. And then Carl going, you cannot call the Karanguni man here, ma, he still her things. Wow. So it was like... Why is he the only one paying attention and wanting to hear these things?
0: And and the the when the first time the video was played in court, there was no the audio was, was not played along with the video in the first trial.
1: Um, um, I believe it was. Oh, it was. Yeah.
0: So, you know, we've covered like two mas- ma- massive issues, right? The the chain of custody of evidence and the the recorded statements. Uh, and the inaccuracy and all that. Let, let's talk about what happened in court and how. Uh, first of all, um, the putting the the on the stand, and they say a lot of really contradictory things, which, um, and of course, there's the most infamous remark about wearing women's clothing. Uh, I mean. Was there any sense when you were sitting there in court that this these were not credible witnesses, at least in the first trial?
1: That would be an understatement, but um, I mean, I I was not allowed to attend the trial. Uh, at at some point, Anil had intended for me to uh, be called as an expert witness for the defense, defense side. So until that point. Uh, I was not able to attend the trial as a potential witness. So I was just reading uh, belatedly all the notes of evidence to kind of get up to speed with what was happening in court. So what I'm sharing is from the notes of evidence. Uh, Of course, I was kept up to date by what was happening on a day-to-day basis. But um, there were a lot of things that were revealed in court that were extremely disturbing and we, when we were putting together the defence submissions, we had highlighted um, for each prosecution witness what were some troubling aspects of what they'd said in court. So for A S B Tang, it was, uh, you know, the breaks in the chain of evidence. For uh, the crime scene photographer uh, Go, it was the, the fact that um, he drew the sketch with the three boxes in when they were not there. Um, so, um, for example... Um, Madam Ng, uh, Mrs. Liu, um, she, I think, was trying to support uh, her son's evidence. So Carl had said um, one of the uh, one of the items on the chart sheets Carl claimed as his were kitchen utensils that Party herself had purchased. So these include uh, steel pots, uh, this kind of like ceramic pots. A fox kni- uh, and spoons, chopsticks, and two knives a pink knife and a black handled Jame knife. So, Carl's uh, version is that he'd purchased these items when he was studying as a student in Wales, Cardiff, and that he'd shipped them all back after he'd completed his studies around 2002. So, we'll come to Carl's car later, but Madam Ng uh, had said that when Carl um, shipped the items back, uh, and she was asked, so where were these items kept in the house? And she said, uh, Ibu Yanni packed them. And Aniel kept saying, are you sure it was Yani that packed these items? said, yes, yes, I'm very sure. It's her job. She has to pack these items. It's her job. She packed them. But then Aniel kind of then pointed out that this, this happened in 2002. Yani was not hired by you until 2007. So it hmm. would have been physically impossible for her to have been the person to have packed these items in your house. But she continued to insist that it was Jenny. So um, I, I think that was, to me, very clear because she's saying something just quite impossible to have happened. Yeah. right? And then Carl, back to Carl you and the kitchen utensils. So he says he shipped all these things back. So the pink knife, which... Uh, Justice Chan also spoke about um, in his High Court judgments. This pink knife is quite a modern looking knife. It's a knife with like little cut out hearts and and sort of pictures on it, right? Right. And Carl Liu admitted in court that this is a very modern looking knife, probably wasn't available in 2002 in the UK. So he himself admitted that it probably wasn't possible for him to purchase a knife like this in 2002, and yet he claimed ownership of it and explained that these were things that he bought in 2002. And then the black knife, which is manufactured by Jami, which is a company based in Singapore. Our defense witness, Ms. Tiu, came to court and said, this black knife was not manufactured until 2006. It was not available in 2002. So then later on, um, when Carl was questioned about these kitchen utensils again, after this, he says, oh, uh, I bought it, in the season of time. It's another very memorable phrase from Patty Liani's trial.
0: So he, he means he had just bought it in the past and he doesn't remember when. Yeah,
1: his is, I guess it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's stretched now to from 2002 to the season of time. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> and like, is
0: there a sense, uh, I, guess, I mean... All of this, I know you weren't there, but all of this is just taken seriously in court. Did Anil ever come back and say, I don't know what on earth these people are talking about, you know, or something?
1: I I do have to say that, you know, in the grounds of decision by District Judge Olivia Lowe.
0: Right, in the um, first trial.
1: In the first trial. So, her grounds of decision... She says, I found the prosecution witnesses to be largely credible and found the evidence to be clear, compelling, and consistent, even under lengthy cross-examination. The, defend, uh, the prosecution's submissions, they said that the prosecution witnesses were consistent and credible, compelling, and realistic.
0: That's clearly not true. As, you know, as Judge Chan later pointed out, I I guess we can't really will understand what was going through her mind or why she wrote that. Uh but it just it just it's it's just startling. I just um So I need a moment to process this.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I oh mean dear. that's that's how it was like for the defense team, you know, to to attend the trial, to read the notes, to to see and realize that this is what was happening and yet and yet she was sentenced to 26 months in jail and, and we haven't even come to the sleight of hand right that yeah. was mentioned by uh, justice Chan so yeah. in let's talk
0: about the the prosecution and, and their behavior then. yeah yeah
1: so in in justice Chan's uh, document which everybody should read. Uh, <laughs> He talks about the DVD player, and this is something that we brought up uh, as well, right? What what uh, was termed by defense as a sleight of hand, right? Sleight so, of hand, yeah. Yeah, sleight of hand. Sorry. So so this is based on the DVD player, which uh, Mr. Liu had said that Party had stolen, and he which was valued at a thousand dollars, and which Party had said was not working. So uh, Party had explained in court that what had happened was that Mrs. Liu wanted to throw this DVD player because it was not working. Party said, uh, if you don't want it, uh, can I have it? I can get it fixed in Indonesia. And uh, Madam, um, Mrs Yu said, up to you. So Party kept it. She didn't test it, she just kept it, right? And then at the state court trial, uh, the prosecutors Tan Yan Ying and Tan Wee Hao did a demonstration where they kind of hooked it up and had actually engaged the hard disk drive and played a clip in court. And then subsequently asked party again, you know, whether it was working, and party said that you know she didn't know because she didn't test it, and they then kind of made it seem like she lied about the fact that it wasn't working, and therefore her story about how she'd come to own this uh, DVD player was a lie. So um, Anil was trying to question this demonstration because he was uh, wondering whether there was actually a DVD player inserted into the. DVD player, but there, there wasn't. It was actually being played from the, the hardest memory, I suppose. So anyway, at the High Court Appeal, um, Anil requested for the DVD player to be brought in. And therefore, uh, when the DVD player was switched to the DVD player mode, uh, this is paragraph 90, page 46 of Justice Chan's High Court Judgment, there was an error message, right? It says could not initialize DISC. So the DVD player, the DVD function of the DVD player, it, it's not working, right? Right. Yeah. So the DVD player is not working. Yes. Right. Okay. So there were already difficulties with the functionality of this DVD player, even at the state courts. And the prosecution conceded and agreed, I'm reading from the judgment, eh? On appeal, the prosecution conceded and agreed with the defence that during the trial below, there were already difficulties with the functionality of the Pioneer DVD player in playing the DVD disc but not the recorded clip in the hard drive. This, however, was neither disclosed to the accused prior to the cross-examination of party on the working condition nor disclosed to the judge in the trial below. Because they did not, if the prosecution had known of this defect in the Pioneer DVD player during the trial, it should have fully disclosed it. The trial court could be misled into thinking that the Pioneer DVD player was in good working condition when questions were unfairly put to party on the basis that the DVD player was still in a good working condition after an incomplete demonstration of its important functionalities during the trial. The rule, and then he goes on to say that the rule against introducing evidence from the bar should apply equally to the prosecution and the defense.
0: Man, I'm dying here. I just. Imagine uh, so you how we felt. <laughs> 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 uh, but wh- I don't even. So I don't. I mean, I, okay, so we can't speculate on the motives of the prosecutor. I suppose they want to get a prosecution, but there's so much going on and then they do this sleight of hand with the dvd player but they're supposed to be on the side of justice not on the side of we must get a prosecution no matter what and why even bring up this dvd player when you have so much other evidence already yeah i just i i i'm just uh, <laughs> Yeah, why? The question keeps coming up. Why? Why did this happen? Why did the judge allow this to happen and, and was so thoroughly, you know, bought into it? And why did the prosecution do this?
1: Yeah, so, so I mean, uh, if you read the High Court Judgment, right, um, on... Okay, so back to... I mean, that, that Justice Chan had to actually remind everyone that... Um, that someone is innocent until proven guilty, that the bar is beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, to think that he had to emphasise this in his judgment. So on page 76, right, he talks about this, right? It is clear that the prosecution is unable to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt solely on the basis of Carl's testimony due to his evident lack of credibility. I emphasise that an accused person is presumed innocent, And this presumption is not displaced under the prosecution has discharged its burden of proof. It is not the responsibility of the defense to disprove the prosecution's case. That a high court judge has to remind us that somebody is presumed innocent, right? And you need, and that there is a certain burden of proof threshold that you need to cross. It's remarkable. You know, and and I think then this is where I want to make the point that the narrative from this case cannot be that, oh, justice has prevailed. You know, we have a robust system. Let's tweak a few things, um, throw a scapegoat under the bus, and then it's back to business as usual, right? What this case shows is that you know, we have to ask so many questions about how things escalated from one police report to a warrant of arrest immediately the next day subsequently inaction delays breaks in the chain of evidence contamination of evidence all these things being revealed in court and yet pushing ahead pushing ahead pushing ahead until she was sentenced to 26 months in jail and then what it did take was this heroic judge paying attention right I know that there are a lot of people applauding Justice Chan and I applaud him too because he paid attention, he applied legal reasoning and thinking and he acquitted party. But how is it that it took this one man to pay attention for this result and this outcome to be achieved? That is a really, really terrifying thing to realise about our criminal justice system. And that is what we need to think about. We cannot just celebrate this as oh yay, justice prevailed. No, that's not the narrative here it was despite all odds it was so exceptional such a confluence of factors right that had to come together for this outcome and think about the fact that she was actually sentenced to 26 months in jail and that could have that could very well have been the end of this story if she didn't have the gumption the strength to continue to fight this case and Anil agreed to do it as well that terrifying prospect is what should drive us now to say no it's time for accountability not celebration yeah
0: that's the thing right the every judge should be like Justice Chan every lawyer should be like Anil but instead the reason why we're celebrating them appears to be they are exceptions Um, and what we're celebrating actually should just be the norm and this is a this whole case is an indication of very deep-seated, deep-rooted problems within our system as a whole, whether it's the justice system, the legal system, um, or, you know, broader issues of uh, broader structural issues. Uh, People have talked about elitism in Singapore, differentiated treatment for the wealthy and well-connected. Uh, but also, of course, also how migrant workers are treated, and the whole system uh, of you know how we bring in migrant workers and how uh, they're employed and how we treat them.
1: Yeah, and I mean, because you know this case also, I mean, it's drawn a lot of attention um, because it it's sensationalist and many parts of it that that draws media attention and scrutiny. But I think what's also important is for us to realise that there are other Partiliani's whose cases have not garnered attention, right, who may not have had the same level of representation. Um, And we need to think... uh, Yanis' case should open up and uh, we should sustain our scrutiny on all the practices that it exposes, right, and not allow it to be seen as... Um, if we deal with and handle this case, if we investigate this case, then, then we're done. So there are a lot of other domestic workers because when I was working at the shelter, it wasn't just Yani who was undergoing this situation. It was just that hers was, I guess, the, the biggest case because of the sheer number of items, because um, of the charges, uh, because of the days of trial that it entailed. But there were also other women who are accused of theft. And I do need to share this observation that theft is is not uncommonly used by employers and it can be very easily weaponized theft accusations can be very easily weaponized as a means to make things really difficult for domestic workers or migrant workers it's also a way sometimes to preempt um, complaints by domestic w- workers against employers sometimes it's something that's done as a counter accusation after the domestic worker has run away and I've seen a number of cases of this when I was at home. Okay
0: so let's talk about the structural issues and the first thing I want to ask is that Anil actually tried to say in the first trial give a motive towards what the Liu's were doing by saying that the Liu's uh had illegally deployed ibuyani mm-hmm. she wanted to make a complaint and then that's why she was fired but then the the judge didn't allow them to say that or didn't allow anil to in, to to make that argument
1: um so there were several times during the trial where uh anil was trying to advance uh you know, trying to introduce more about the motive uh, and the fact that there was illegal deployment. But whenever he tried to bring up the MM investigation into illegal deployment, um, the prosecutors would object. And then um, the Olivia Lowe also said that it was not relevant. Because? I can't remember her exact words, but okay. she kept saying it was not relevant. And every time... I don't try to bring it up. Uh, the prosecutors would object. Right. Yeah, so it was very difficult for him to fully flesh out that argument because mm. he kept being kind of like held back at every point he tried mm. to raise it. Yeah,
0: but this is this is as as we've been discussing part of a broader pattern where, on the one hand, you have exploitation of migrant workers, and on the other hand, the weaponization of theft accusations. Um, ha- and and you you've already gone through a number of these cases, so uh, I think we we don't need to go over them again. But just give us an idea of how many domestic workers are in homes shelter at any given time.
1: About sixty to seventy. Good lord. Yeah, and I mean when I was working there, like at every week we would have an average of fifteen to twenty new runaways every week. So imagine the full year, right? The yeah. Turnover, uh, yeah so and there would be a whole range of complaints right from salary to verbal abuse to overwork and then of course some would be those who are there because there's been a criminal charge yeah. uh, or they're under investigation yeah. whether by MOM or by the police and and if they are the ones that are so there are two types they could be on a special pass because they are accused of a crime or they could be on a special pass because uh, MOM or the police are investigating the employer and they are helped back to assist in investigations but they are the right. victim Right. So then right. in those cases, they would be given permission to work. But if you are the one that's sort of uh, accused of a crime, then, then you, it would be very hard for you to get permission to work.
0: Right. Okay. And is there any, like, how long do they tend, up, tend to stay? Because the, the, the way you describe it, like, months if yeah. not years, during which yes. a lot of these would uh, It depends. Know, so uh,
1: previously, when we had another situation where she was the victim... Um, she, t- she was stuck in our shelter for two years and she's the one that's wow. the victim like there's employers who were accused of physical abuse right and she kept asking the police when can I go back when can I go back so the length uh, at which they are held back is some it's, it's a huge problem yeah. and it's really frustrating because we'll always constantly be chasing down police officers emailing them calling them trying to get some news um, but it, it often takes a really long time for their cases to be resolved It's sometimes difficult to get clear updates as well. So, I mean, the duration and the length is one thing. The other thing that you need to think about that can really affect your mental health is the the whole unpredictability and the indefinite delays. Imagine never really knowing when you can plan some things, right? You never really know when your case will close, how long it will take, how how long it will advance, exactly when you'll be charged, if you'll be charged, what the charge would be. So all this uncertainty... Uh, can cause a lot of mental distress.
0: I I mean, especially if, if on you know, if you are um, accused of something, and you know that there's a certain process and a trial, uh, then at at least there's some sort of idea of of process. But if you are being held back to assist because you're the victim, and then you then, you know, it's like um, what was the uh, re-victimizing, that, uh, re-victimizing, mm, that's <laughs> yes, a good word. <laughs> yeah. Uh so I mean again right it seems like we're okay with you know revictimizing domestic workers and migrant workers but not okay with doing that to employers uh and it should be fair. Um no one should be revictimized I suppose. Um but, you know, the, the, broad, the there's broader issues here. And I know the last time you were on political agenda, we talked about all these huge issues with the migrant worker system, uh, with the plight of migrant workers in Singapore, structural issues and challenges. Um, and then now we've added on top of it issues with the legal system, the justice system.
1: Mm.
0: And of course you know, after the pandemic and everything that's happened with migrant workers in the pandemic, we've really exposed a horrible, horrible underbelly, which you and other activists have been talking about for years, literally years, right? And when's all this going to end? How, how, do, how can we live in a world where we, where we keep exploiting people in this way? And this, I, I mean, I don't know now, I'm just, I'm just very frustrated, but it, it's part of this broader attitude that we have that, you know, it's okay to exploit people. Um, and, you know, this fundamentally very neoliberal idea of a person's inherent value and dignity is tied to their productivity as an economic digit. And if someone is only able to make a wage of $500 a month, they're only worth that you know that much compared to someone worth, you know, uh, making a wage of, of four thousand dollars a month. They that person therefore is is eight times or many more times more with you know uh, has greater value as a human being, which is deeply deeply offensive. But our whole economy seems to be structured on this concept that it's okay to exploit people. And how on earth do we deal with this?
1: Yeah. So I mean that that's basically the lens that's applied right Um, I think the lens is one that's very dehumanizing Um, it's all about commodified labor and of course you know there will be times maybe once or twice a year where we will celebrate their achievements we will show appreciation we will have all these celebrations to say oh you know, uh, Singapore is built on your labour. But then, in reality, on um, day-to-day, how we structure our policies, um, how we think or do not think of their well-being and their rights, what we do have is a very dehumanising commodified lens in which we only want migrant workers here when they pass their medical tests to show that they are free of illnesses, diseases, they are able-bodied, they are productive, they are young. But, They must be transient and never impose any kind of social load on us. That's exactly the word that was used by, I can't remember which minister now, that they do not impose a social load. That they come here and they are a buffer. They are here when times are good and they are the first to go when times are bad.
0: Or ballast, wasn't that also a word used in the election about migrant workers and then thrown overboard?
1: I remembered the buffer one because it's been used a like lot. Okay. Yeah, so they, my foreign workers are buffers. That's buffers. been used several times. Here, when times are good to help us grow our economy, you know, build up our infrastructure, and times are bad, they're the first to go. I, I guess maybe I would also like to say that um, the criminal justice system and the problems embedded in it, it's not just, uh, shouldn't just be migrant worker focused. I mean, now there's also attention on death penalty cases. And I think, actually, it's really important that we form some kind of coalition uh, of persons working on criminal justice issues, that it doesn't just get narrowed down to, oh, let's only talk about Parti case and what it means for the criminal justice system. We need to enlarge also the lens and think about all the different aspects of the criminal justice system, all the way from law enforcement um, to uh, prosecutors, etc., and think about all the different types of cases that um, are seen. You know, there's also sexual harassment cases that have been in the news. So I think that the impetus often um, for the state is to narrow, 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 individualize, individualize, individualize. Whereas I feel that our job as civil society is to always enlarge, 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 point to the structural demand for accountability. We don't want scapegoats. We don't want one... Person to just be thrown under the bus. We want accountability. We want structural change.
0: Yeah, I think, and, and really that can only happen if we get together collectively and demand that change, because clearly there are deep-seated issues with the system as it is. And by abdicating our responsibility thus far, you know, where we have a, a government, a very paternalistic government, which has encouraged us to just abdicate our role as citizens um, and defend our rights as citizens and leave it in their hands, this has all happened on their watch and it, it shows that we can't trust the government no matter how benevolent right, or well-meaning. Ultimately, a system is only as good as us citizens willing to uh, fight um, for, for our rights and to watch over and demand transparency and accountability from those those in power.
1: And maybe one final point is that if we, if this episode has shown us very spectacularly how fallible, um, persons no matter how kind of uh, well trained or they are, um, if we have a uh, fallible individuals who are part of a fallible system, then we should also allow. For people to criticize and demand transparency and accountability without intimidating and harassing them, we should think about our contempt of court laws, mm. about the fact that we would easily um, prosecute someone for scandalizing the d- d- judiciary if they, if they were questioning things that were happening you know, um, at the courts. But if this case has shown anything, it would that we do need that level of scrutiny we do need people to sound alarms and not at the tail end and not only after one judge pays attention and writes this kind of um, judgment and gets attention. You know, This case happened in open court. Mm. It wasn't a closed court situation and yet it got that far. So we need to ensure that we have an environment where people can speak openly. You know, I shouldn't have felt so nervous to talk about this case while it was ongoing, but I was, because there was all this concern about, oh, will I be scandalising judiciary, will this be contempt of court? So Mm. we also need to rethink and relook into that kind of political environment that we have created such that people are fearful to call out behaviours of people in the criminal justice system. We need to show that, yes, we are open to that level of scrutiny. We are open to be held accountable. We will not just intimidate and harass and criticize people who raise problems.
0: Well said. So on that note, I think, uh, thank you very much, Steffi, for joining us today. For, Thanks for having me. Yeah, It's been, it's been a, a privilege and pleasure to listen to, you know, and, and to speak to you. Um, and I want to thank you for all your hard work on this case. And I know there are probably so many other cases you're working on and, uh, that need attention too. So I, I want to remind our audience as Steffi has said, has said, right, this isn't an isolated incident and it should never have gotten this far. And Justice Chan and uh, Anil, wonderful people, but they should be typical of the system, not exceptions to it. And of course, yourself, Steffi, you know, all all Singaporeans should have the the courage uh, and the compassion that you have. And so I want to thank you too. You know, we must not forget your role, the other volunteers. So thank you. Thank you,
1: team. I just really want to thank the team. Yeah, I think we worked really well together and without their support and solidarity, I think we would not have gotten so far but yeah persevere it was really perseverance that got us where we are
0: thank you and thank you to all of you listening thank you for thank joining you. me on political agenda and i'll see you next time our thanks to dr stephanie chock check out our sister podcast the southeast asia dispatches for more news interviews and commentary from around southeast asia this is pj thumb wishing you a great week ahead